Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Monday, March 20th. Let me be the last person to tell you that my bracket is busted. And I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's it going, my friend? I'm doing well, uh, watching sports to procrastinate school, um, mixing metal to procrastinate podcast prep, and depriving myself of sleep to preemptively initiate napping to procrastinate whatever I have left to procrastinate. How are you doing? Uh, hanging in there. Uh, good weekend. Had to recover a little bit from St. Patrick's Day Ooh. on Friday. Uh, that was an eventful evening in a little place called Molly Bloom's Irish Pub. <laughs> Fun night. And then spent the weekend uh, coaching the Western uh, gentleman their last some of them their last tournament as a university student uh had some fun over the weekend that allowed me to recover and not do anything too crazy uh, and then back again another week of work hoping that the weather's gonna warm up a little bit here in london and uh just looking forward to another another week here as we get closer to spring yeah, the blue skies feels like three quarters of the progress to summer, and now we just need temperature where it's socially acceptable to wear a t-shirt and burks as opposed to demanded that you've got to keep the parka and jeans on. But we never really start the podcast off with blue skies. Uh, I will let you choose between some light Twitter bullshit and some darker, more real-world international politics. Uh, Stots is the acronym for this segment. I have to, I, oh, stats. I like it. I'm going to have to go Twitter. I can't, I can't deal with the real stuff right now. Oh, here I was memorizing statutes of the Rome statute of the International Criminal Court for nothing. <laughs> so Jesse Single is a Substack writer these days who has been a career scientific journalist and uh, he gets a lot of online hate for some of his writing because uh, he's taken an interest in like trans youth medicine and looks at the most prominent papers that get published and says things like, hey, uh, you guys in this paper are like noting that these two factors being improved over this cohort is significant. Uh, what about like the other six that you put at the hypothesis at the start of this cohort, like that you have no mention of in the paper? How's that data doing? Or like going into the nitty gritty of like how a scale is designed, really like technical science writer who looks like pretty deep in like where our eyes typically glaze over uh, and tries to make that more accessible. Um, so that's a lot of controversy, controversy and uh, admits traffic. So Twitter is a fantastic place to follow him. My like barometer for following people is basically if people I follow retweet or engage with someone a lot and I see their name constantly, eventually I follow. If they annoy me, I unfollow. Uh, he never annoyed me. So I probably like started listening to him a year ago or so. Anyway, long story short, back in January, uh, someone who worked at a youth clinic wrote a like affidavit um, to start like criminal proceedings against the clinic. Uh, so a whistleblower type, he did two articles about her interviewing her for the second. In between those articles, he was like amidst a lot of shit and basically wrote a personal note saying this is taking too much of my time being on here, like fighting these fights that are totally meaningless. I need to get off of here and be more productive with my time. 
Uh, so in between those two, and then like in the second one, a bunch of activists who, as usual, were like raging at his shit, um, like said he violated a bunch of laws and was going to jail, which was very much not the case. And like basic readings would have told you this. Uh, then when he deleted the account, as he had said he would before, uh, publishing that second post uh, in the I'm going to delete this account. He wrote about how people always get it wrong. Um, when he finally deleted it, he said one more time, this is why I'm deleting my account. And sure enough, like within 12 hours of him deleting his account, shit was going viral saying like he's deleted his account because he's going to jail. It sounds so mind numbing and draining and less interesting when I say it all out loud. Uh, stupidly terrible or terribly stupid oh i'm trying to wrap my head around it as you as you laid it out for me this feels terribly stupid yes <laughs> um the the ending of the stats acronym as i yeah I've, i'm trying to just figure out oh misinformation on the internet that's crazy like <laughs> it's it, like it's the they can't like i guess if you follow him more there's constant criticism of things he hasn't said and putting words in his mouth uh, like another example of this and part of the affidavit that the whistleblower has alleged is that like a child came in who was identifying as like a communist and attack helicopter like the literal meme right and so he noted in the story like yes the meme on podcasts he's talked about yes this is the meme that this person identified it as uh so then like all the hate going towards him was like how did you not believe that this was just made up like did you not know it was a meme of course this is made up uh which remains to be like tested and verified in court but meanwhile like throughout his writing and acknowledgments of the topic he's acknowledged that this is a very online meme uh, and it's in the same breadth of like criticize completely ignoring what he actually said and criticizing what he like didn't say that they ignored all this talk of I'm getting off of Twitter and like immediately put words in his mouth and reasons why he got off Twitter. That is just so like microcosm of the whole yeah. five years. It's such a uh, scary dichotomy of what to distinct is there's always has to be a side on twitter you always have to be on a side and and both of those sides are often so intensely focused on their side of things that they will craft a narrative to ensure that their side is seemingly correct and that is why i spend most of my time not on twitter because it is a dangerous place full of just crazy people and it, it has changed a lot of the way that our society is operated is that there is something happens and you distinctly have to take a position and one way or the other position you take is so insulated from so much vital information one way or the other um i know a lot more things it, and i have a lot more interests and this whole segment is basically based off of me scrolling off twitter constantly though like probably for the better of my health i rarely actually tweet anything and never get into exchanges uh, oh yeah yeah 
Never. I've never commented. <laughs> Luckily, we have this platform where we never take sides on anything and just uh, talk and just talk both sides into the ground, right? That's what we do on a sports. Yeah, sports well, we podcast. certainly talked that non-sports bit into the ground and then <laughs> some, so we'll get onto the sports. Thanks for bearing with me there. Uh, I felt like I didn't do it justice in the first half and had to give it a bit of a second spin. I think no spin will be necessary to talk on the opening um, bit of our show today. We're going to start with the Usman versus Edwards trilogy, where Leon Edwards successfully defends his belt against Kamaru Usman, uh, continue his winning streak, uh, taking the majority in the trilogy, and uh, starting a new chapter in the welterweight division. So that last bit is certainly plenty of food for thought, but We'll see if we have any time to talk about future welterweight matchups, because first I just want to talk about the fight a little. It was a masterclass by Edwards of like all the things watching guys fight Usman over the years has frustrated you about. He fixed, did everything you'd want, and then some. Uh, the main one is cage awareness. Like so many guys would just sit their backs on the cage, Edwards included in the previous fights. And like his Usman's pressure would get them there and they would just stay and like almost be begging five, 10, 15 seconds. Come on, shoot. Like I'm too afraid to move off. And then if they did move off, it felt like 10 seconds later, their back was against the cage again, or at least behind the black line. Edwards showed fantastic cage awareness. Like prevention is the first part of like most defenses and takedown defense included he did a really nice job of staying aware that Usman always shoots basically behind the black line and uh, that if he keeps his feet in front of them uh, the takedown attempts are going to be far less frequent to fight off the other thing is when his feet did get behind the black line I'm thinking of one sequence early in the second round uh he stood firm and threw with power it was nothing weak no like light jabs or probing kicks more hooks and uppercuts that uh, make Usman really think twice about sticking his head in and going any further from it uh the knees in the clinch as well just another really like powerful solid strike right up the middle to deter that movement right in towards him uh leg kicks Usman's been known for having weak knees for like many of the past years so just going after them kicking like with the teep kicks uh and like other kicks right around that area rather than low on too low on the calf or too high on the thigh targeting that area uh Edwards did it throughout the fight whenever he had space but at the right time never like uh when Usman was advancing with too much pressure to make like an easy takedown um and it really showed throughout the rounds it, you saw Usman slowing down. You saw him unable to really jump and explode forward with that wrestling pressure. Uh, someone commented on the last preview video that they didn't, they thought Edwards was more explosive than Usman and that Usman isn't explosive. I completely disagree with that. I think the way he gets the takedown is a massive explosion of athleticism to close the distance that he creates uh, with the striking pressure when the opponents are get against the cage and then he gets his hands clasped and uses his strength usually one more big explosion in there and that's one of the last parts Usman did so well he didn't let Us excuse me one of the last parts Edwards did so well uh hand fighting Usman almost never got his hands clasped it was like virtuoso technicality oh 
the way he simultaneously like left and right hands just tracked both of Usman's and managed to get a hand on each wrist pretty much every time and from there it was just underhooks and I'm pretty sure Dominic Cruz had like three hands free orgasms watching that fight uh Edwards did such an amazing job of after trapping those hands like getting his arms up having the underhooks and from that position of strength shut rugging Usman off and then like exploding oh there I said Edwards is explosive uh lightly footwork moving uh with the grace of a panther back into the middle of the cage it's not that he's not not fast like Israel Adesanya is a cobra a fast striker but he's not an explosive striker the way like Alex Pereira is and I'd put Edwards much more like Adesanya than Pereira last two things uh he had a really nice body kick early that it looked like might actually end the fight in the moment and followed those up with shots throughout and this was the most tired we had ever seen Usman looking in the fight so I thought that showed greatly and on the other side he definitely was slower in the fourth and fifth than the first and second and the rounds showed their wear on them that was nothing like in Salt Lake City and he showed that elevation was a massive factor in that fight and uh, that he is able to execute like a really tight technical difficult tight wire game plan for 25 minutes so fantastic showing from Leon Edwards I don't know what the future of the welterweight holds the guy I really want to see get the shot shocks out Shavkat Ram nope not it's not coming out uh <laughs> the guy who beat Jeff Neal in the last pay-per-view card uh is who I want to see get the next title shot it doesn't sound like that's going to happen more on matchmaking in future videos because we've got plenty more podcasts to get to but one more time masterclass from Edwards congratulations very good very good uh I like how the combat corner has returned here in the midst uh, of the the swing of many other sports it, being it's a, it, it's a bit of a rough time isn't it like this the combat corner in the tennis is taking all my attention here as you'll see when we get into basketball and hockey um and I was kind of cursing the UFC for putting three pay-per-views in like seven or eight weeks together but it has certainly picked up the interest and kept it more of a habit, more consistent. It's all good because as as compelling as the NBA and the NHL are currently, it still feels like everyone's just waiting for the playoffs at this point. We are in that final stretch of the regular season and there's still somehow like 17 games left. And NHL. so it feels like it's in the final stretch, but at the same time, it's not. And mm -hmm. so these games are dragging out and it's definitely exciting at times, but it feels like we're just ready to get to the playoffs. So I think it is good timing to bring in some of these other sports. Yeah, I, I mean, 20 days of basketball really left before we get into the playoffs a little more than that for hockey. Um, yeah, I like it really, it seems like the standings are starting to really solidify or strata, stratify. Is that a verb? Not in the West. I don't know what you're trying to say, but it's not <laughs> happening in the West. In either no, in the sport. East. In the East. Uh, in the NBA, it's been long solidified in the East in the NHL. I, I've been talking a lot this podcast. Please <laughs> take the my mic away. Yeah, well, you're right. The East is. I mean, they loaded it up at the trade deadline. 
uh, it's going to be a murderer's row no matter what series you end up in, uh, and it's going to be make for very entertaining playoff hockey. Like we said, we've already known the Leafs matchup since November. I'll say it until I am blue in the face, but you're just trying to glean any small things you can from these games right now about the character, the preparation, the chemistry of this team. Seems like everyone genuinely likes each other in that locker room, which is always important and, and good. And when you get wins for guys like Matt Murray, that's always a good building block towards what you're trying to achieve as a whole on the season. And they come off of a shootout loss to the Colorado Avalanche where those two teams played really tight hockey, not a ton of uh, rushes either way and, and a low-scoring affair. Uh, and of course, in a game against Ottawa, it's always going to be a circus. It, it doesn't matter where the two teams are at in in any event, bad, good, standings, season, injuries, whatever. It's always going to be a ride. And Matt Murray stands up to 50 shots in regulation and overtime. And then we go nine rounds of shootout hockey. And the Leafs finally pull that one out. Murray gets a quote revenge game uh win and and the Leafs just show that extra bit of we're still the best team in Ontario we needed those two points just to kind of contain or maintain a buffer over Tampa for home ice advantage and keep accumulating points and wins and getting our players more looks in different situations um I don't think this win will have any play wise, I don't think this win will have any real positive takeaways for what they want to do come the playoffs, but it's that team morale boost of getting a win for a guy like Matt Murray, who missed the majority of the season with an injury, playing a team that gave him a contract and then realized they didn't want it anymore. They shipped him off for nothing uh, and he gets to go back and, and beat them. It's, it's always a sweet moment. Any goalie seems to have the potential for just those crazy nights and that's part of the fun of the variability of hockey feels extra good when you can line up one of those nights uh in a revenge slot around the rest of the east uh it seems like the wild card race is starting to narrow down uh, as there are about th between 13 and uh 11 games left on the season for various teams at this point the Islanders and the Penguins still sitting in those wild card spots. The Islanders two points up, um, the Penguins two games in hand. The Islanders playing the Leafs tonight? No, tomorrow. That'll be tonight when this podcast has been posted and aired. Uh, and surprise, the Senators, who I thought bought, uh, not doing so hot, a couple points down, the Florida Panthers right there in the race uh 69 games played 77 points so they're two games in hand and uh three points behind the islanders they'd have a shot at making it over them uh if the season ended here today uh but then behind them the capitals the sabers the senators you're all you're starting to see some breathing room where a team's gonna need a like four three four game stretch of winning and losing the counterbalance for one of those teams to get back in the mix uh so they've managed to front run off the challenge so far the islanders and the penguins also first place in the metropolitan not totally settled 
the Devils just one point behind the Hurricanes right now, though the Hurricanes have two games in hand. Uh, more space there between the third place Rangers, who have sort of righted some of the wrongs uh, since the trade deadline. It looked like the Penguins might have like a one in a crazy chance at catching them, though uh, that danger seems to have settled and they're looking comfortable for the third spot. Yeah, it's a good point. I actually misspoke. They were coming off of the Leafs were coming off of a big win against Carolina uh, on Friday. Colorado was the game on Wednesday and and the Hurricanes have scuffled recently and and the Devils uh, seem to be maintaining a steady pace. So curious to see how that race is going to end up. And the Florida Panthers have been red hot as well. So add another really strong team from previous years that's trying to sneak in the back door and potentially make some noise. And the West is still as topsy-turvy <laughs> as ever. Yeah, yeah. who knows how that one's going to shake out. All right, moving to basketball here where we've had some movers and shakers as well, uh, it, it, specifically in the Western Conference. The Lakers getting a big win last night over Orlando uh, to, to stay in the hunt, but Oklahoma City Thunder beating Phoenix over the weekend. And and they are still right in the thick of things somehow. You thought they would have sent Shea into the, I don't know, the abyss uh, so they could tank one more time, but they're letting him play it out. And, and the Thunder have kind of that frisky, super athletic, young energy that they can throw at teams. Kind of reminiscent of their like 2009, 2010 teams when they were just all babies, but they just had a ton of athleticism and uh, put it put it to some teams, specifically the San Antonio Spurs. And so uh, with that being said, the West is super intriguing night to night. You have to follow that quite intently. Um, the race for the one seed actually does not seem to be set with the Nuggets going on a four-game losing streak recently. They get a win against Brooklyn yesterday. But the Sacramento Kings continue to win and... I was very close to buying the Bean Team jerseys that were advertised last week by the Kings Herald. I don't know if anyone saw those, but uh, like I like we were talking about before the podcast, still making some good financial decisions at this point, uh, trying to be frugal and not dropping it on a really cool jersey. But it, it the Kings are really exciting, and they've they had a really strong strength of schedule, but they've just continued to rise to the challenge. And their offense right now, I think, points per possession-wise, is the greatest of all time. Um, that doesn't mean anything when the greatest offense of all time has been a team from each of the last three seasons. It's just NBA offenses are becoming more efficient than they ever have been. But in that era of efficient offenses, the Kings are still the best. And... De'Aaron Fox is going to win Clutch Player of the Year. He's been phenomenal in those clutch situations, uh, and the Kings have been really, really exciting. Um, so crazy to think how good they've been, and they might honestly be an underdog when we get to the playoffs, depending on who that seven seed ends up being. Yeah, that's crazy that they could be going against the Warriors in the first round, uh, potentially. Uh, Memphis not looking so hot for the chase. Um the other thing that caught my eye in the West is the Portland Trailblazers look like they've fallen off and out of the race. They're sitting yeah. four games back right now of that seed, uh, but it, it's just 
it's the slightest of margins. And right now, like teams 12 through six are within two wins of each other. So yeah. like seeing the three win space of the trailblazers, yeah. um, it, it just signals a massive drop off. And I heard Lillard giving an interview sometime this week that indicates he's not expecting the, the push to continue too much longer. They'll uh, find if, a, a made up injury for him. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, fascinating stuff in the West and my one big take from the east as things also stratify I, I still don't know the verb we still got our top three maybe cleveland looking a little more catchable uh by the knicks they're just three games between them uh the heat the nets still like looking more solid atlanta's not been steady and they've got almost just as tough a strength of schedule as the raptors so i'm looking to yeah. see if we can push a spot there i don't know how much of a difference uh well between eight and nine you're getting one more chance at the play and so that's really worth the push if you can make it uh the big take for me though is that at the start of the season in the first two weeks i was waving a red flag over the take of the 76ers at the top as i imagine were a lot of people and slowly but steadily they've righted that ship and um, mm-hmm. put this team in the standing position that a lot of pundits, ourselves included, had thought they would be in at this time in the season. So feels bad to see Philly win, but feels right to feels good to be right in the long run. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back into my season preview, but I think it's shaping up to look a lot better this year um, than, than we initially had thought at the beginning of the season. So um proud of myself for that and this philly team's been really really good and joel Embiid is now the favorite for mvp with his run of the last couple weeks and max we get at the end of this week uh philadelphia milwaukee and then philadelphia denver i think in in the span of three days so some really really funny fun uh nba mvp potential matchups coming up I'm afraid to put my foot in my mouth here and I'm not going to be able to fact check this in real time, but I think Jokic is coming off a back-to-back when they play against each other, uh, which is a big bummer. You just know Embiid's going to bring it in those games. Oh yeah. No, it's just, it's too bad. We don't get like the matchup that that should be and uh, should be considered when making the schedule. Um, I, I don't think we have the time to flush this out discussion to flush this discussion out fully but would you like to see an offensive mvp alongside defensive mvp and then like one actual mvp because i my main take is that would simplify a lot of this discussion so you're going with the football method where they have an mvp and then they have the offensive and defensive player of the year even in the nhl like we have we have like awards that track and goals and points yeah. and then we have the ted Lindsay for most outstanding and but those though, are objective with the art ross and the richard like yeah and i think you would end up with something near an objective formula between points assists and offensive rebounds uh with maybe some shooting percentages like happily driving that uh offensive mvp discussion but i i, I feel like not having it adds too much weight and like having just mvp and defensive player kind of necessarily dictates the terms of how we talk about most valuable player uh in a way that 
ignores a lot of defensive value or necessarily overstates offensive. And like, I'm not even saying Embiid is my pick. Yeah, I I just feel, I think the MVP is just so important and rooted in how it's been built that you you stick with that. You have your defensive player of the year, which can be someone completely off the board. But I think defense does get factored into that conversation. And that is why Embiid and Giannis are hanging in tough with Jokic, who has led the race for much of the year. And I think the all-NBA teams are where you can get and really flush out both sides of the argument for a lot of these players. I really don't. I think it's always offensively loaded when we have these conversations and these picks, even with all-NBA. Hmm. I I find that I, I think NBA gets a better better think, touch of defensive rather than the All Stars because the coaches and and the players vote on it and not the fans or uh, alongside the media. But the players don't do great voting. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the, it's it's media, right? Who vote yeah. for All NBA? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I just I think ten times te- out of ten between the guy who scored a few more points in like the high 20s and the guy who maybe nine times out of 10 and the guy who's more quietly successful on defense it always goes to the guy with the points and uh it's just a very offensively loaded um version of value that it, runs the discussion well and there's there's still not like a a great system of metrics for defense so until you mm-hmm. until we have numbers to measure defense in the same way that we can measure offense, I think it's going to be that way. Um, we actually managed to get quite a lot of discussion in, and we're not even at the 10-minute. Ah, uh, there we go. <laughs> just that we said it. Well, uh, just wanted to touch on the Raps, get a big victory over uh, the Nuggets, and then two must-wins against teams they should beat in OKC and Minnesota without Anthony Edwards, but they do drop a tough one to Giannis in the Bucks last night and and Giannis put on quite a performance you would expect the Raptors to maybe let him or force him to miss a shot but that's obviously not the case and so Raptors reset gut check last stretch here I think you really your goal is to try and jump Atlanta and then beat Milwaukee uh, or Milwaukee Miami for the seven seed so that you don't have to face a Milwaukee in the first round. It just, however great Boston and Philadelphia are and have been this season, they just feel a touch more vulnerable than in Milwaukee. I think, and that's why I picked Milwaukee at the beginning of the season, but they just feel like the inevitable favorite for me right now in, in the entire NBA. Yeah. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but the Hawks looking somewhat vulnerable uh in their start it, it's not a walk of gimme games and they lost to the spurs in the last week so i don't even know how much i pick them in more favorable matchups like against the wizards and the timberwolves uh so still the destiny in their own hands for this team who just <laughs> i have no expectations for at this point in the roller coaster season yep yep all right. Speaking of roller coasters, really quick, March Madness, two second uh, uh, checkpoint in here. We had four of the eight one and two seeds get knocked out in the first weekend of action. Purdue with an all time loss to Farley Dickinson University. 
that that sounds like something a sports writer made up uh in like writing a fictional story yeah. to embarrass the first seed with a nonsensical name the second 16 seed to ever beat a one seed in in march madness the farley dickinson university did not even win their own conference tournament they had I mean, the worst on. strength of schedule in the entire NCAA basketball this year, uh, 163 out of 163. But they come in, also the shortest team in the tournament, just by average height. And they come in and they beat Zach Eady at 7-3 and the, and the Purdue Boilermakers in a massive upset. Purdue goes down to a 13 seed or higher three years in a row. Tough look for them. Uh, and then you also see Kansas going down to Arkansas, uh, Arizona going down to Princeton. The Ivy League Tigers are one win away from the Elite Eight now as they got a win in their second round matchup. Uh, and then Marquette as well losing in their second round matchup. So uh, some big upsets, of course, that come with the territory of March Madness. My bracket's actually overall not terrible. I think I'm sitting at 83% correct so you take what you can get and uh another big one from this week was the uh Furman uh University Paladins and Max I I can guarantee you know what a paladin is um like Star Wars or oh you're on the right track I guess yeah I see I knew what it was because I'd played Dungeons and Dragons but I guess uh, a lot of sports fans don't play Dungeons and Dragons it's a yeah. it's a night of religion right it's oh yeah yeah I've yeah. come across that in other fictional yeah yeah the, the Christian knight the paladins uh they they defeat the Virginia team who was the first team to ever lose to a 16 seed so it's been a rough stretch of years i mean in between they won a national title so quite the up and down talk about roller coasters right for for virginia but uh been an entertaining march madness so far i don't think as many buzzer beaters as we would have liked to see i don't think there has been an official one yet there i saw one highlight from the first round of like a brutal turnover like that was the virginia one yeah yeah um yeah they got that, just that doesn't count it as a buzzer orbit. beater yeah, I guess that that probably has been the most exciting shot of the tournament so far. Yeah, and plenty of wedgies in this tournament. I don't know what they did with the rims or the balls, but plenty of wedgies. There are a lot of words in that sentence. Sports. Good thing we watch sports. All right. Uh, we'll wrap up there with the basketball chatter, and uh, we'll throw it back over to you for tennis. Yeah, I thought you were uh, reading the first notes of my line when you said roller coaster, actually a word, a verb, a noun, an adjective I used to describe the match between uh, Elena Rubikina and Arnia Sabalenka. That's right. Those are WTA names. Sometimes things in marketing are so transparent, they just work and stacking the women's finals right before the men's finals is a great way to get more people to watch the women's final. And I'm glad I did because it was a really fun final match. Uh, running back the Australian Open final of this year. My first I've seen Rubikina play a couple times my first look at Sabalenka. Overall, like, just both really high level players though in that there's nothing they do badly and every aspect of the game they have like an elite competitive advantage over what i would say consists of the tour average 
And playing like at that level, there's going to be some mistakes, some errors, uh, plenty unforced. But that mix between your level might dip at any time and your opponent might play so well, even on your most perfect shots, just creates a really variable, tense, uh, topsy-turvy game. And the first set embodied that all the way through, each player getting a break at one point, looking like they had the momentum on another. I think of the 12 games, like nine or 10 of them must have gone to deuce. Uh, just no no player felt safe and it felt like it could go at any time. Felt like Sabalenka was the player with the higher peaks, but she was also the one making more double faults and Rubikina stayed a bit more consistent. And then that just got embodied even further in the first set when uh, like I think each player had three or four sets points at least uh rubikina had also had one or two in the serve game heading in to that tie break um and ultimately sabalenka either like double faulted to give up a match point or to present rubikina a match point and eventually she was able to settle down the shot making and uh do something nice to take the set and then when they talk in tennis about those back and forth momentums like six seven eight nine uh deuce points tie breaks that really go into the distance and whichever player comes out of the battle of wills ahead having like a significant mental edge this book should be or this match should be in the textbook describing that phenomenon because that's exactly what happened in the second set Sabalenka just lost about 10 points in a row if you count the last two of the tiebreak, and that gave Rubikina a break to get ahead. Sabalenka was too good to just be out for the set. Like Eventually, her shots started going. She got back to her style of tennis, but she was already down a break. Rubikina, later in the set, midway point, was able to double up that break as Sabalenka faltered again. Uh, and then a little, little more drama, Rubikina... Um, drops one of her breaks does plays her worst service game of the match uh serving for it but then is able to write the ship on her next try and get it done so congratulations to her on her first thousand masters title definitely her first time in winning indian wells if the points she had from wimbledon were counted she'd be top three in the world right now uh, so definitely one of the players on the tour to watch out for and on the men's side, Alcaraz just steamrolled Medvedev. Uh, the wall that stopped so many players uh, was Spanish cannoned right through. You knew the drop shots would give Medvedev trouble. They did that and then some. And then Medvedev served badly. Alcaraz served well. And all those things together just created a huge margin of victory for Alcaraz. I think it was over in 70 minutes. In Miami, starting up this Wednesday, Medvedev will have a chance for revenge. He sits in the bottom half of the draw. Alcaraz sits in the top as the one seed. Stefano Tsitsipas, the two seed, way at the bottom, is going to look to not get bounced out of the first round. Denis Shapovalov with a great draw looking uh, potential if he can get going. No big names until the semifinals when he'd run into Alcaraz if he can get by Holger Rune and all the other good names uh another fantastic week and a half of tennis in miami that we will talk about next time until then sports next door signing out you get to the station there's this crazy sound hey man this ain't no fishing town yeah they're fishing that ain't all they're all listening to that sound